0: This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. I'm Stephen McCaffin, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Rings of Power Wads of Cash Edition. It's Wednesday, September 7th, 2022. On today's show, Rings of Power is the Tolkien prequel. It's on Amazon Prime. It is a lavish spectacle, but does it honor the master's vision? We will discuss. And then the feature film Breaking recounts the true story of Brian Brown Easley, an ex-Marine who took a Wells Fargo branch hostage in search of some tiny, tiny measure of justice. The film stars John Boyega as Easley and the late, great Michael K. Williams as the hostage negotiator trying to save his life. And finally, we discussed the ethics of child actors. Uh, Dana's the parent of a child performer, so she will bring much to the table there. It's a subject also made topical, I think, as people know, by the Jeanette McCurdy memoir and Nathan Fielder's controversial use of very young performers, we will discuss. Joining me is uh, Julia Turner, the deputy managing editor of the L.A. Times. Hey, Julia. Hello, hello. And, of course, Dana Stevens is the film critic for Slate. Hey, Dana. Hey, hey. I'm very psyched to discuss all the above with both of you. It's nice to have the three of us together again. Shall we uh, dig in? Shall we make a show?
1: Let's do it. Let's,
0: yeah. All right. Well, um, as I think most people consuming media... Uh, These days, no world building has become the key to blockbuster making Lord of the Rings is uh, kind of the original built out world in some sense. I think it's uh, still maybe it's most intricately sweepingly fully conceived built out imaginative world complete with genealogies and legends within legends, even its own famously made up language. So it makes some sense to milk it for all it's worth. Enter Amazon Prime with Lord of the Ring, Rings of Power, a sort of mammoth prequel spun out from a material that's taken from Tolkien's appendices to Lord of the Rings. So it originally comes from Tolkien's imagination. How much they've spun it away from that is a subject of some controversy among Tolkien heads. I'm not even going to try to recap the plot, but why don't we listen to a clip. In the clip, we're about to hear Nori, who's a hobbit child, uh, is being lectured about a hobbit's place in the world by Marigold, her protective mother.
1: Wait, except, Steve, they're Harfoots because it's like a thousand years before the thingamajig, and so they're Harfoots and not hobbits, maybe?
0: They're pre-Hobbits? Okay. I, I
1: think they're like proto-Hobbits.
0: <laughs> no, that's fine. They're pre-Hobbits. It uh, shows you what I'm bringing to the table here today. Let's listen to the clip.
2: I can't help but feel this... Wonders in this world beyond our wandering. I've told you countless
1: times. Elves have forests to protect, dwarfs their mines, mend their fields of grain. Even trees have to worry about the soil beneath their roots. But we Harfoots are free from the worries of the wide world.
0: This is a huge splash. It's uh, highly budgeted. It's, I think, by any standard, it's beautifully produced, beautiful looking. Julia, let me start with you. Um, did you find yourself taken in by this material?
1: Well, so they are releasing the show week by week, which I think is smart. Like I think, as we're learning about the streaming strategies, when you have something that is incredibly highly anticipated and has a built-in fan base. Releasing week by week allows the conversation and the tension to build. But it also means that we're talking about two episodes that we've seen. And I'm curious to see how the show evolves, because I do think that in the second episode, you kind of get through the like thicket of Highfalutin, breathy. I mean, that clip we just heard is dreadful. Who would want to listen to that for hours? Like, I have a feeling there's a world out there. It's like, (laughs) oh my god, you're not. That's like not a person. (laughs) Like,
0: it's just. (laughs) I will. I have to jump in and say I'd listen to hours of you doing that accent, though. Um. Well, (laughs) we can we can arrange that
1: if you'd like. But (laughs) I was struck watching this by the comparison to Game of Thrones, and. You know, I don't think it's unfair to compare it to Game of Thrones because quite publicly, Amazon Prime, the streaming service that has not had that level of mega hit, has set out to create another Game of Thrones and spent hundreds of millions of dollars to do this. It's famously the most expensive television show ever made, and you can see it. It looks good. But Game of Thrones went at the kind of pomp and circumstance of a medieval fantasy with character and realism, right? Like the way that it was sort of shot and the way that the characters were introduced to us and the way that they spoke and the way that they behaved and their uncouthness and their crassness and their cunning, you sort of felt these like recognizable sparks of real humanity set in, you know, this land of legend and white walkers and a weird ice wall and dragons and whatever the heck. And that tension is, I think, A, part of what made that show successful and B, part of what made it appealing to a broad group beyond the type of people who think of themselves as interested in medieval style fantasy. And this show does not do that. Like, everybody speaks in that type of, like... Long monologue about the battle between light and dark and the place in society and the kind of cutting, arresting humanism that was present in even the earliest Games of Thrones is not here. And I found it a bit eye-glazy. On the other hand, by the end of the second episode, I was a little bit curious about where it was going and maybe the show will be able to move past the kind of pompous world building into more interesting character Development as it moves along,
0: Dana. I think of. Uh, I think of. First, let me begin by saying many extraordinary people I respect um, love Lord of the Rings, but I nonetheless I associate it with kind of like the exalted incel identity of someone like Elon Musk. I can't think of a person more opposite to that than you. I'm curious whether you were taken in by this production at all.
3: Because you mentioned Elon Musk, I feel the need to mention that he has already expressed his hatred of this particular Lord of the Rings adaptation. <laughs> so maybe you like it, yeah. Which puts me more on its side just automatically. Yeah. But yeah, cool. I'll take your, your question head on from my point of view. The thing that makes this particular adaptation worth watching for me is Morphid Clark, who plays the young mm-hmm. Galadriel, the elf character, the elf queen in the future, who's played by Cate Blanchett in the Peter Jackson movies. And Morfitt Clark is amazing. I mean, this part Mm -hmm, is a little bit of a, you know, your standard beautiful, brilliant, fierce Joan of Arc fantasy queen. But there's something about her performance that pushes it almost to... The edge of obsession that I think is really really watchable, and I just recognize her immediately. I can't remember now on the show if we talked about Saint Maud, which is one of my favorite movies to be released in twenty twenty. Yeah, yeah, we did no, right. We talked we about did. it, and, yeah, and she really played good, yeah. obviously in that this kind of you know this driven mystic this girl who has religious visions, someone who is kind of a Joan of Arc like figure. And maybe that's just Morphe Clark's beat, and she will always play that kind of role. Or maybe I'm just, my love for St. Maude is influencing uh, my watching of this show. But whenever she is on screen, I'm excited and compelled. There are a lot of other stories that I care a lot less about. But this feels to me like it's sort of a Lord of the Rings light for people who don't want the violence of Game of Thrones, right? Maybe they want to watch it with their kids. I think it would be a pretty good family show, It is not the material, Steve, is not particularly up my alley, but I did love The Hobbit as a kid. I loved that book, could not get through the rest of the Lord of the Rings books, Mm -hmm. thought that I cared nothing about fantasy, and then found myself completely ravished by that Peter Jackson trilogy in the early 2000s, which I think still holds up as just great. Adventure filmmaking, you know, just beautiful sort of Miltonic epic filmmaking that is very easy to be snarky about, but it's also very hard to resist when you're watching Mm -hmm. those movies. So it's a high bar to follow up on, on those movies, which, you know, everyone, even people like me who are not particularly at home in the fantasy universe, loved. So... What this show is trying to do seems like it's sort of mucking about in the margins of that mythology. As you say, it's based on the, the appendices that Tolkien wrote for for the books. So it really is just the um, sort of fan fiction of a bunch of authors who dove in and decided to kind of massage this material into something new. And to me, it's not particularly watchable, but it looks gorgeous. It is done Tastefully, although the writing could be a little bit sharper. The director of the first few episodes is Juan Antonio Bayona, who I think is a great horror director. He made the great Spanish horror film, The Orphanage, and who has an eye and a feel for this kind of material. Mm -hmm. But so far, this is not a thing that has achieved liftoff for me and would keep me watching, except for Morford Clark. Mm
0: -hmm. Whoa,
1: I just, I have to quickly dissent on Morphid Clark. Someone pointed out to me before I watched it that she never opens her teeth like all the all of her (laughs) lines she delivers like this and then i couldn't unnotice it and then all of her scenes were ruined for me so i now give that gift to all of you
0: (laughs) that's funny uh so listen i have a kind of pet theory of binaries which is like the world divides up into x people or y people and then there are these kind of pairs these dyads like so you're either tolstoy or dostoevsky person lennon or mccartney person a beethoven or a mozart person i think the theory is facile and almost sure, surely wrong, which is why I'm going to apply it to there being Narnia guys or Lord of the Rings guys. You're either sort of team CS Lewis or team Tolkien. I was just down the line, a Narnia guy. I couldn't, I found the mythologies and, and, and of just the general portentous tone of of the Tolkien project impenetrable as a kid never returned to it, but I'm with you, Dana, that the, Kind of like the Harry Potter movies, I didn't really... Re- I mean, I read Harry Potter in bits and pieces to my kids trading off with my wife. I never really read an entire one through. It was fine. It wasn't really exactly for me. But you could tell watching the movies when we did them for the show that people brought their A-game to the material because they thought it was worth honoring. And that's not always true with these huge budgeted projects. To use a slightly demeaning word or reductive word, a property, an intellectual piece of intellectual property that earns its huge budgets. It's, it is a real world a fully realized imaginative world and deserves all of the cgi and money thrown at it the question i kept asking as i watched this is it possible to find something riveting but also totally unengrossing like what how exactly is it possible that that's my experience of this like this very small target i didn't know exist is exactly what this show has hit as everyone has said you guys included it's visually stunning it's beautifully cast and acted and it's just that portentousness about a mythology that means nothing to me going in, right? So it's it's its core audience has to be fan serviced to the max. And they want that experience of re-immersion in the world. And so the and especially when you do a backstory, it's like, can you believe that the origins of the, you know, hobbits are these whatever they're called or whatever, or oh my gosh. And it's like, if you don't have those nerves to tingle, if you don't have that background with the material, it's a little lost. And yet I just found it so visually beautiful and well-performed. And I was riveted, but unengrossed. Like, I don't I don't care what happens, but I can't stop watching it if that makes some sense. But Julia, the segment's just not going to be complete unless we pick up on something, which is this, to my mind, preposterous pseudo scandal about the fact that there are performers, actors of color in this. What is it about Tolkien that inspires a certain kind of person to believe that it has to be an all-white cast or somehow the integrity of the world has been corrupted.
1: Well, I mean, I don't think that it's Tolkien alone. I mean, remember the flap about Oh, it? no they doubt. Made the, yeah. They made the freaking Ghostbusters women and people are right. like, it's a desecration of the text. <laughs> I mean, yeah. you know. But I I do think that this particular fantasy of kind of like the feudal pastoral, you know, there's castles, mm. there's smiths, right. there's farmers, there's wagon. you know, it, it feels like medieval Europe, like as the base template. Right. And, you know, I think there's some threads of like collective Western legend or something that maybe gives people roots, but I, I, I honestly wouldn't even think about it as hard as that. It's like mm. fanboys going to fanboy. I mean, I will say that Lord of the Rings to me is the one book I didn't finish in my childhood. I just remember it as like 50 pages of descriptions of a woods was like the starter of the first book. And I was like, this is too much for me. (laughs) I can't do that. And then since then, my husband read The Hobbit to our kids and The Hobbit is so great. And like Mm -hmm. what this show actually makes me want to read is like a biography of Tolkien and how he got from The Hobbit to The Lord of the Rings because I think mm-hmm. there's sort of an evolution and it's not, not not there in Narnia too like if you you know the first books are like ah oh, these scrappy kids and they're interesting adventures and then the final one is like somehow Christianity is a lion and <laughs> you know they, 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 they do spin out but I, I almost don't want to give the fanboy um, mm-hmm. the racist yeah. fanboy response any oxygen like of course and it's stupid and goodbye
0: The one thing I always wonder about Tolkien in any form is just what was it about modern life that he didn't like that he would make such a thing up, right? To lose himself so deeply into the construction of this world that's an anti-world to ours. Anyway, uh, some of our listeners are going to have loved it. Some are going to have hated it. Love to hear from you guys. So shoot us a text about rings of power. Let's, uh, Let's move on. Before we go any further this is typically in the show where we discuss business no doubt we have some Dana what's uh, what's up today
3: Steve, le business aujourd'hui is just to tell you about our Slate Plus segment. This week, we have a guest for our Slate Plus segment. It's beloved friend of the program, Jody Rosen, former music critic at Slate, now a contributing writer at the Times Magazine. He recently published a 9,000-word profile in the Times Magazine of none other than Willie Nelson, the musical legend. So we're going to talk with Jody about Willie Nelson and listen to some Willie Nelson in our Slate Plus segment this week. If you're a Slate Plus member, you will hear that at the end of the show. And if you're not, of course, you can sign up at Slate slash Culture Plus. When you're a member of Slate Plus, you get ad-free podcasts, you get bonus content, like the segment I just described, which also appears on lots of other shows on Slate, the Slow Burn, The Political Gab Fest, many others. And of course, you will get unlimited access to all of the writing on Slate.com. Most of all, you will be supporting us, our show, our podcast, the writing, and the work of our brilliant colleagues at Slate. These memberships matter a lot to us. So please sign up today at Slate.com slash Culture Plus. Once again, that's Slate.com slash Culture Plus.
0: All right. Well, Breaking is a new feature film. It stars John Boyega as Brian Brown Easley. In real life, Easley, it was a ex-Marine who took a bank branch hostage claiming he had a bomb in his backpack. Uh, He'd been honorably discharged and he was owed money by the VA, by the Veterans Administration. As depicted in the film, he's a complicated man on a complicated mission to get his measly 800 bucks that he's owed by the VA back. But really it's You know, it's way more than that. What he wants is to be seen, right? I mean, this is a guy whose humanity, as depicted in the film, is under constant erasure. The film is superficially a thriller, but in reality, it's a wrenching social commentary on America's power to use, make use of, and then render totally invisible vast portions of its own citizenry. Uh, I should say it is also the last film performance of the very, very, very great Michael K. Williams, uh, still, I think, best known as Omar from The Wire, uh, we don't have a clip from the film, but we do have the trailer. Why don't we play it?
2: Is everyone all right in there? I have a bomb, and I'm gonna kill myself and everybody in here. Mocking demands, and I'm in. I'm sorry. The V8 stole my disability check. They left me homeless. I won't be able to feed my family. I need everybody to see what's happening here.
1: You have my undivided attention.
2: Get the blinds. Get the lights. I don't want the bank's money. Everything
0: you do matters. <laughs> Just make good, Brian. Just make good Okay, Dana, I mean, I, I don't want to demean the film by calling it a Latter-day Dog Day afternoon, but it has certain familiar genre elements, but combined with very different, very contemporary slant on that kind of material, um, this is a human being who's really, really been screwed with and is deeply suffering, and it's an extraordinary performance by Boyega, if nothing else. Do you think it coheres as a movie? What you, what'd you make of it as a film?
3: Yeah, this is an odd case where there's no specific thing or maybe a couple that we'll get to, but there's not really anything wrong with this movie, but there's not quite enough there to bring it over the top to, to greatness. And as you say, John Boyega is is fantastic. He's the reason to watch the movie, I think. And even if you're familiar with him from, you know, The Last Jedi, obviously the Star Wars movies he's done, but also Attack the Block, which I think was kind of his breakthrough movie, the, the English sci-fi thriller. He tends to play these, you know, big, dynamic Forceful characters. And here he's really playing someone extremely interior, very troubled, um, someone who is full of self-loathing that comes out in really difficult to watch ways, just a very different character, somebody who's sort of trying to make himself disappear at every moment and mm. just plays it so, so beautifully. I think that the the principal problem with this movie in terms of it being, as you say, a Dog Day Afternoon style hostage crisis negotiation movie, right, that takes place all in one location in this bank is that the negotiation doesn't start early enough. Michael K. Williams as the as the negotiator is is great and the dynamic between them is really good. But it is a good 40 minutes into this less than two hour long movie before the negotiation gets started. And that's part of the story, to be sure, that there's this frustration on the behalf of, of the hostages and, and also Boyega's character that they can't get a negotiator on the phone. But at least Michael K. Williams' character could have been introduced in the outside world as someone who was trying to talk to them. It's almost as if this movie's second main protagonist on the side mm-hmm. of the law and really the only good lawman in the movie, right? He represents the the, the one figure who's actually trying to help and not just find a sniper to, to pick off this, this um, prospective uh, terrorist. He he doesn't the the relationship doesn't really cement until the movie is practically over and that was a really strange choice on the screenwriter's part because other than that this movie's kind of got it all like the two women who are being held hostage in the bank two bank employees pl- played by Selena Sleva and and Nicole Bihari are both great they're not quite given enough backstory I'd like to know a bit more about them but the the, the dynamic among those three works beautifully. I like the understated nature of this movie and the fact that it doesn't build toward a big action climax. And without spoiling anything, I can say that most of the action toward the end takes place off screen. But in a strange way, this movie was almost there, but not quite. It almost like it needed another 10 or 15 minutes. As I say, it needed that relationship with the negotiator to start earlier. When it was over, I had a little bit of is-that-it kind of feeling. And also just a a real sadness at the tragedy of this story, which I think that in a way the, the bigger... Reference would be Fruitvale Station, that Ryan Coogler movie, Mm, mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. um, About the, uh, also a true story about a black man hounded unfairly by the law and by the system. It was sort of a Fruitvale Station meets Dog Day Afternoon, but not quite as good as either of those two movies, unfortunately.
0: Mm. Julia, what do you think?
3: Yeah, it's funny. The movie feels slight,
1: even though the topic is really serious and the performances are largely really great. There's some kind of like, structural tinkering required to make it land with more heft i think but i found myself leaving the movie less thinking like wow what a brutal high impact Piece of cinema I have just sat through and more thinking like oh it would be really interesting to watch all the bank heist movies of the last sixty years and like write a paper about how, like like it's you can kind of see its intellectual ideas on its sleeve a little bit too much but you know I I do think the kind of dowdiness of the bank the commonness of um, bank robberies these days the paltry amount of the money that he's actually trying to get back, the feeling of being lost in an unfeeling, inhumane bureaucracy, and the fact that the Michael K. Williams character, the negotiator, is also lost in a bureaucracy, right? Like, even though typically in these films, the negotiator on the outside is commanding and has the power and is the key to diffusing the situation. And maybe there's some some subplot where he has a conflict with his superiors. You know, there's always some brute who just wants to blow it all up and the negotiator wants to get everybody out safely. But like when the plot events unfold the way that they do you don't even quite know why like you don't actually see that it's not dramatized like you don't have a mm. sense that humans are making the decisions that cause things to go this way or that way it just feels like there's an implacability of bureaucracy and systemic power that kind of steamrolls all the human force and will uh underlying um the the, the movements of the plot and that is like a strong and interesting intellectual idea that is maybe part of what's dampening the narrative. Like I think the point of the movie is that even Michael K. Williams and all of his charisma and all of his power, mm-hmm. like can't actually control the situation. And that's again, sort of like more interesting to think about maybe than it is moving.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I'll say what really landed for me about the movie is that the performances of Boyega and Williams above all, you know, I mean, it's, clearly the true story on which it's based and the importance of the true story. I mean, the movie is dedicated to this hostage taker for a reason. And by the end of the movie, you feel, I think, very powerfully the reason, which is that this country used his body and used his courage and used his sense of duty and then treated him like an unperson. And I think Boyega and the script bring it home in a way. I don't think it succeeds as a hostage movie. Maybe it doesn't really want to, but it, it it seems to want to, right? I mean, one of the points of the movie is that there's this entire prescripted way in which is, this is going to go and easily slash Boyega says it. He says, I'm going to be killed, right? And he says it quite explicitly if I were white. I mean, he hears about the one previous bank robbery from one of his hostages that happened at that particular branch. And he says, did the guy live in the, bank manager says, yeah. And he says, so and Boyega says he was, white. So he, was, he was white, right? Like this is pre-scripted. He is committing suicide by committing this crime and he knows it from the absolute beginning. And here's where the movie, I think it becomes genuinely riveting. I agree, Dana, Williams comes in way too late. It's an odd plot quirk of the movie. You're not exploiting the most interesting thing about the movie and one of the two genuinely great actors in the movie, but the script is being rewritten because the chief hostage negotiator is also a black man fighting for his dignity in America. And the absolutely riveting tension of the movie is in what capacity is he speaking to Boyega? Is he speaking to him as the man whose sole mission is to get the two hostages out alive? Or is he speaking to him as someone who has existed under the same erasure and exploitative abuse of a racist society and speaking to him man to man in order to get him out alive. And he is trying to make Boyega slash easily believe that it's the latter. Every single conversation between those two actors I thought was premium cinema. I mean, not to be trite about it. I thought it was riveting filmmaking. And I was like, that's what this movie is about. Right. Is, you know, to what extent has the Williams character, it, the man, right? To what extent is he the very kind of huge apparatus of hostage safety of over militarized police using the hostages as an excuse to have all this equipment? And that's the other point that the movie visually makes is that the public budgets are absolutely unlimited when a situation like this arises. Like we as a society are completely prepared to throw billions of dollars at keeping us all quote unquote safe from the other, right? And yet we can't spare $800 for this guy who risked his life for this country. And so it was the oddest thing where a lot of the first hour of the movie for me is strangely slack, you know? And one of the two hostages in particular is unfortunately given the actorly burden of of keeping it tense for us. Like she's constantly kind of whimpering and hyperventilating. And I felt sorry for her because you don't feel the tension that she's vocalizing and and embodying. And so you're like, that's a ridiculous performance when it shouldn't be. It's actually quite a good actress doing quite a good job, but it's like the movie doesn't justify her panic. And in fact, she's left to compensate for what's slack about the movie. And then the instant William shows up on the scene, it's, I think a terrific film. So that's where I come out, Dana on like fence sitting with this movie. I mean, I certainly would not tell people to run to see it, but I would encourage people to see it.
3: Yeah, I would encourage people to see it too, if only because I think it's exciting and interesting that someone wanted to debut with a film like this. The director, Abby Damaris Corman, is a young woman making her first feature film, and to come out with something that's, you know, it's this downbeat, first of all, right, based on a very depressing true story, and that really is a tiny little ensemble piece. This won an ensemble jury award at, uh, at Sundance because, because I guess, because of the tight location and the smallness of the cast, right? It truly yeah. is an ensemble, and every cast member interacts with every other cast member, the major characters anyway. So the fact that the director, Abby Damaris Corbin, chose to make this her debut is exciting in itself. I would keep an eye on what she does next. And it's also a way to say goodbye to Michael K. Williams, who died of an accidental drug overdose last year, right? Just a, a few months ago, it seems like. Uh, he has two more performances to come, one more movie and one in a TV show. But this is one of your last chances to to get to see him on screen.
1: Yeah, and I I would send people to this. I mean, it, it is interesting to think about. I, I actually kind of want to watch it again to look at more about the mechanics of how both of their humanity and agency Michael K. Williams' and John Boyega's characters is kind of crushed and lost here. And it's interesting what the film is doing with that tension and with with their charisma and their power and their their inability to exert those forces on the world to any particular effect. So, yeah, I I would send people to check it out for sure.
0: Me too. The movie is breaking. It's in theaters now. It's not streaming yet. Go check it out and uh, talk to us about it online. All right. Well, I think an age-old topic of how and whether you allow your children to appear in movies or on stage at a highly professional level when they're maybe a little young to make certain kinds of decisions for themselves has gained a new topical urgency. Thanks, I would say, to two things above all. There's the I'm Glad My Mom Died memoir by by Jeanette McCurdy, the actress who appeared as a very young girl on the iCarly TV show, which my kids watched. I kind of loved that show, Uh, bonded with it and with them through it. And that there are now horror stories McCurdy has recounted quite vividly the nightmare she went through as the, essentially the victim of her mother and various executives associated with the show. There's also Nathan Fielder has used kids some exceedingly, I mean, down to infancy in unusual, unexpected ways in his very postmodern, kind of quasi real, quasi very unreal TV show, the rehearsal. So Dana, one of the reasons we want to do this is that you are the parent of an up and coming child performer. You are the person least likely to be a quote unquote stage mom that I think I know, but I'm wondering whether or not you experience it as any kind of a dilemma to have a super talented kid who seems to be ready to make these kinds of leaps.
3: Can I just note the irony of kicking off a segment that's linked to my daughter's acting in my relationship to it with a memoir called I'm Glad My Mom Died? Oh, dear. Well, to put it this way, I hope that I'm not setting up my daughter to write such a memoir one day it's really not that analogous in the sense that obviously my daughter is not famous and has no success on any kind of grand scale in fact that part that she had in Modern Love while it was a big role in the script she had a trailer all to herself and was third on the call sheet was almost completely cut out so that was you know one of her first experiences of the actor's life on screen seeing yourself get completely cut out and for the most part what she has done is you know school plays and local drama camps and things like that so she's hardly you know fighting off the paparazzi as she walks outside the door but this is something that has interested me for a long time for all kinds of reasons. I mean, both because she has on her own really kicked off her, her acting career and gotten into performing arts high school and really started doing all of this stuff in a way that has made me think about what would happen, you know, if she were to become a performing child. And also because I just finished writing this book about Buster Keaton, who, you know, was an extremely famous performing child for the first 17 years of his life, 20 years of his life, something like that, and arguably had all kinds of emotional damage from that later in life that caused him to act out, you know, drink too much, have his life fall apart in midlife, and in many ways have a, a typical child actor's trajectory. So I guess maybe the question we're taking on is, is it okay to let your children act and I don't know that I have a great answer to that. I mean there are a few stories I guess of currently working actors who had a smooth transition from being child actors to adult actors like Kristen Stewart comes to mind. People don't often think of her as a child actor but she's been acting since she was 10 or so. Uh Christian Bale I guess although we could argue whether or not he turned out okay given he's got a few meltdown stories under his belt. But most of these stories that you hear, you know, from obviously Michael Jackson, Judy Garland, you know, the sort of big stories of child actors whose lives have gotten really, really tough. Um, It just seems like more often than not, you hear about stories where things go wrong. So it makes me sort of grateful that, you know, my daughter's part got cut and that maybe she'll get to become an actor in her own time as she becomes an adult. If it had been the case that, you know, when she was nine years old or however old Jeanette McCurdy was when she started on TV, she had a TV show and, you know, had that kind of fame, then... Who knows? Would I have quit my job to right. become her momager? Right. I don't know. It's all just speculative at that point.
0: Um, yeah, Julie, it just seems to me there are so many fluid, unstable variables here. It's very hard to come up with a like you know hard and fast formula for whether or not one should X, Y, Z. I mean, you could be a terrific parent who withheld your kid uh, from this. You could be a terrible parent who withheld your uh, uh, kid from this. Uh, it seems so case by case in some sense. And by the way, as consumers, we want to watch Kids cast as kids, right? Like, we don't want, (laughs) you know, we don't want 30 year old men kneeling, right? Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like de
1: aging Um, technology. No,
0: yeah, exactly.
1: It would not be good. It's such an interesting thicket. And one other reason why I was interested to talk about it actually is this big narrative investigation that Stacy Perman, a reporter at the LA Times, did earlier this year about whatever happened to Laura Lee, uh, about the story of Laura Lee Mickles, who was this enormous child star, you know, supposedly like the next Shirley Temple and was the subject of a major custody dispute. And then just had a life that, as Stacy's reporting showed, sort of fell to ruin and then oblivion pretty quickly. And it's just an, an amazingly told story and an amazing example of how it's not a new trend that Hollywood has been using and abusing children and been a tableau in which parents with their own motives can treat small humans pretty terribly. But I think there's a couple issues here. One is there's a lot of different ways to be a terrible parent and a lot of different ways to be a good parent. And in some ways, you know, you have to assume that some set of people who've been performing since they're young, it's just in them. It's what they want to do. You can see it. And the talent is there and the hunger is there. And it's really coming from the kids. And the appropriate parental response is to like support and develop that and to help the kids develop boundaries around it. And then for some, it's like the deferred you know, transference of a desire for fame and, and notoriety and and um, a, a public life. And I think some parents decide like, oh, well, I didn't get there on my own, but perhaps this charming little Moppet will be my ticket in, you know. So you never know what's going on in any given marriage. You never know what's going on in any given family, or it's hard to know from the outside. Although there are many very public examples of terrible parents in Hollywood. I think it's worth noting that there are also lots of terrible parents in other dynamics and other ways as well, which is also awful, but I'm not sure that child acting is like the lone landscape upon which this kind of behavior happens. The The two things that seem distinct about it though are the financial incentives for the parents. I mean, there's sort of the fame and glory incentives for the parents and then the financial incentives for the parents, particularly for someone who gets on a show like iCarly that's really providing a recurring income that could sustain a a family, presumably. And then what it is to have a kid and let them go through adolescence when you're developing your sense of self and where kind of your sense of self and self-esteem should come from with the additional potential factor of fame, which can just be so confounding and dangerous and confusing for grownups and for everybody. So those are the two elements that seem unique and you know, I think there are kind of better regulations in place around the financial piece of it, but the question of fame feels thorny. On the other hand, again, any kid you're raising has to figure out like, do they have an Instagram? What do they put on the Instagram? Like mm-hmm. the sense of the sense of being like spectated as a human right. is no longer the exclusive province of people who are in screened productions. Right.
0: Right. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I mean, I think that the the danger is so great in part because both sides of the equation are not liable to be necessarily acting in the child's best interests. If you have parents who are vicariously or a parent who's vicariously living through the possible glories of their kid, that's terrible parenting to begin with. They're more likely to give the kid over to the forces of the other exploiter in the picture, uh, you know, a Hollywood production team whose interest is in getting the shot, getting the whole thing in the can and sending it to market. And that's what's going to determine the pace. It's grueling. You know, obviously there've been there's a long history of sexual exploitation of minors. You know, so the more vicarious the parent is, the more they're willing to look the other way. That's a uniquely terrible situation, right? It goes beyond what can be covered by, I think, the range of poor or good parenting that said, you know, what what are you going to do to police it? I mean, there are all kinds of things on the second part of the equation on the production side, legally and, and regulation wise, guild wise that can protect kids. And those things ought to happen. I have a daughter who was, I think actually quite a talented actress, but really set it aside for ballet. She's, Very good at ballet, but to get to the point where X Factor can come into play at a highly professional level, you have to be so good technically first that there's far less mystery early on about who's going to get to that level. And my daughter herself is frank about it. She's not at that level. So there weren't these tormented dilemmas never faced us as a family at all. But they, you know, in a smaller way, they're there, you know, like when you play Clara, even in a rinky dinko production of The Nutcracker, you know, there's a lot riding on your shoulders. So... I've, I know what it's like to navigate those things. I think I, I, to me, it was always about a continual dialogue with my daughter about what she wanted and why she wanted it. A defining experience of her life as she herself articulates it is seeing a physical movement that she believes is impossible for her to learn or or do successfully and over time, that first time you break through and you do it properly and land properly to the point that you can do it as if you were born being able to do it is not only so defining of her experience as a ballerina, but as someone who now really weirdly loves physics. She says that the analogy is just perfect. It's like, I can't do that. My mind cannot comprehend that equation. It's counterintuitive, it's abstruse math. I'm not capable of that. How amazing that in a month or six months, it'll seem as natural to me as breathing. It was the paradigm laid down by the physical demands of ballet that allowed her to be that person. But if that had come from me, it would be sick, right? It would be, or or her mother or anybody, right? In her life, that would have been kind of a horrible thing to force a kid to do because, you know, there's a chance you don't complete the movement and you're a failure. And that becomes paradigmatic to you. So it's just a question, as you say, it's that X factor, Julia, are you a good parent? Like, are you empathetic to the actual agency and internal existence of your own kid? And how, how do you codify that right in this set of rules? So, I mean, you just can't. Yeah,
1: and, and comes back around to the question that like, I think I, I still wrestle with, people still wrestle with as grownups, which is like, there's work for glory, achievement, praise. There's the good and bad motives around working hard towards a goal, right? Which sometimes, you know, obviously a lot of times children have to work hard in school and to learn and within the context that is like intended for children to develop those skills. And I think child performance exposes them to the fact that those questions don't actually end, which is like, why do you work? Why do you work hard to achieve? Is it about you know, ego and what people say and, and how it looks? Or is it about the satisfaction of exerting yourself in the world and and that feeling and what, what it means to try to to do that better? And those are just really big questions to put on children's shoulders. On the other hand, children are always thinking about the big shit, you know? Like mm-hmm. the, the notion that they aren't, can't, don't, is is almost always wrong, I think. I believe they clock us and they know what's up and they know the score. And the question is sort of how to connect with them and understand what they're really thinking and worrying about and coach them through all that rather than pretend it's not happening.
3: Yeah. You know, I mean, I feel like I have a, I have trouble participating in this conversation without feeling like I'm bragging, but I, I, I honestly think that 100% of my daughter's Impetus to perform comes from her, although I couldn't be happier than I am to have a daughter who's into performance. And as someone who spends my life watching art and thinking about art and writing about art, it's obviously great to to have her emerging in an artistic genre of her own. And she has, I think, more drive to do that and to, to develop herself as an actor and singer and dancer and performer, than I had to develop myself as anything as a kid. Even though I also sort of realized a vocation early and knew that I wanted to do something with writing and language, it was much more in Kuwait and just sort of like, I want to daydream and read books. But it is extraordinary to witness her figuring that out for herself.
0: Mm, Fabulous. You did not sound braggy to my ears at all. That was great. All right. Well, say at the end of most segments, we really want to hear from our listeners, but this is a highly personal one. And I'm sure many of you had... Experiences of your own growing up, or as parents, or or just people in the orbit of younger children who have been performers, love to hear from you. So shoot us an email. Well, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What uh, what do you uh, what do you bring us today?
3: Well, since for our plus segment today we're having on friend of the program Jody Rosen to talk about Willie Nelson and Texas music, I thought I would recommend some Texas music. I was in San Antonio, my hometown. Last week, doing a book event, which was a great experience. My high school French teacher showed up and had me sign one of my books to her, which was a wonderful moment. Um, the kind of thing that you think about, you know, before you write a book and think, well, that could never really happen. Fun. It was so great. Uh, and while I was there, I saw a friend who is a musician who has a band called Buttercup that's been around. They're sort of a San Antonio institution. They've been around probably 20 plus years now and have various spin-off side projects, et cetera. And as a parting gift, my friend Eric Sandin, who's the lead singer for Buttercup, gave me their most recent disc. It came out a few months ago, and it's a pandemic album. It's a six-song, almost like an EP, a short little album that's all autobiographical songs written by various members of Buttercup, who I guess I would characterize as a kind of indie band. I don't know what their style is exactly, because they change from album to album. But this is a very quiet, acoustic style indie album anyway and it's called specs an autobiographical record by buttercup and if you really want to support the band please listen to it on bandcamp you can hear all their music from the last few decades on bandcamp or you can buy a disc there as well
0: that sounds amazing uh julia what do you have
1: just going to go with a, a little more Stret Overflow. I've just have been spending so much time with this playlist and um, this was a song that was actually, I think, on both Dana's and my short list. but it's by a Belgian artist who sings in French called Angel and it's called Oui ou Non. Oh, uh, I
0: love that song. Dana yes, Cannon. that was on my
1: short list for
3: sure. Really, really catchy. I,
1: I always find I sort of live with these playlists the, the long list for a while after our Stret and it's interesting which songs kind of endure and and stick with you and give you that little jolt when it cycles around to them. So Oui Unon by
0: Angel. I uh, dig that song. That's so great. I offer a very, very heartfelt endorsement this week. The great, truly great, uh, Barbara Ehrenreich has died. She is The least ninny-ish leftist, American leftist, I think, who ever lived. She was the conscience of neoliberalism during its awful unfolding. She's an extraordinary prose writer, lucid, direct, simple, and never... Ever gave up the fight for economic justice, which was the centerpiece of her moral universe. I think it's fair to say as a writer, when I was a cub book reviewer, I got sent the book nickel and dimed. I knew Aaron Reich and admired her already, but that was the book that really broke her and, you know, broke her big in the sense of commercially And becoming much more commonly known. That book is about her trying to survive on the minimum wage and working minimum wage jobs and detailing what that was like. And it was just, you know, I know that people have problems with that kind of middle-class standing in, but she herself was from a working-class background. She had parents and ancestors who worked that way. She understood that she was very lucky not to have to, but felt she could provide a service to the world to understand what it was like and write the book and I think she really gave serious impetus to the living wage movement because she detailed perfectly how that is an unliving wage and very quickly I'll say as someone struggling for decades now to write a book about the 1980s you know there aren't very many good books about that decade in my estimation she actually wrote by far in a way, what I think of the, is the best book about the 1980s called Fear of Falling. And it's a book that sort of fell through the cracks. It's forgotten. It was written in 88, I believe, but it was sort of about the fate of the middle class under what wasn't yet really widely called neoliberalism. She doesn't use the word but under Reaganism effectively and it is both the perfect encapsulation of what was happening and why that change was consequential and was bound to stay that way but also it was just prophetic for what we've all been through since There's this radical continual undermining of everything by the forces of a globalized capitalism, and there's no other way to put it. So Barbara Ehrenreich, the great Barbara Ehrenreich, I believe at the age of 81, has passed away. Honor her by reading her work. I I cannot recommend it more highly.
1: You know, I'm so glad you mentioned her, Steve. I just was thinking about her impact and about just how profound that book, Nickel and Dime, was not just in the living wage movement, but I think in really putting a deeper understanding of income inequality and what the working class had evolved into and what kinds of lives those wages allowed. I don't know. I just think it's such an important and influential book in terms of paving the way or using the tools of, of narrative nonfiction journalism to help a broader set of people understand the stakes in the landscape. I'm intending to go back and read it again, but I, I just think her influence cannot be overstated.
0: Well, yeah, thanks for that, Julia. That's that's beautifully put. And thank you so much. What a really nice show. Thank you, Steve. A lot of great stuff today. Thanks, Dana.
3: Yeah, it's nice to be back all together again.
0: You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Our introductory music is by Nicholas Bertel. Our producer is Anna Rubinova. Our production assistant is Nudira Goff for Dana Stevens and Julia Turner and Jody Rosen, supreme friend of the program. I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon. Hello
1: and welcome to the Slot Plus segment of the Slate Culture Gab Fest. Today we are joined by ultimate major superhuman friend of the program, Jody Rhodes, and I'm stumbling with my Steve duties to talk about his wonderful profile. Of Willie Nelson, which appeared in the New York Times Magazine recently, Willie Nelson's long encore. Uh, and we could not resist the one two punch of the great Willie Nelson and the great Jody Rosen. So, Jody, thank you for coming along to talk about your time contemplating the man himself. Thank you, Julia. Hi, everybody. Hey, Jody. So what brought you to the idea of doing a deep dive on him at this moment in his career? And, you know, it is a deep dive. I would send our listeners to it. You've, you, In terms of your secondary interviews, you talk to basically like every major songwriter working today and several other types of musicians, too, about what's interesting and great about Willie Nelson and the uh, intelligence of this piece about the particular musicality of Willie Nelson is one of the things that makes it so great. But yeah, what brought you to
2: this piece? Well, I love Willie Nelson. He's he's one of my favorite musicians of all time. And I'll tell you the truth, which is that I noticed that um, great musicians were sort of dropping like flies for a while there, and there were, there were all these, you know, big retrospective pieces about their careers, but it felt like in certain cases like they'd kind of been forgotten and then, you know, we rediscover them after they're gone. And in Nelson's case, he's not only still alive, but he's very much a working musician. Um, In fact, more of a busy working musician than many people a quarter his age (laughs) who are even big stars out there. So I wanted to write about his achievement, his very unique musicianship, but also to contemplate what it means to be a late-life performing artist.
1: What was the most surprising thing you... Discovered, or or what what uh, confounded your expectations when you started in on this
2: research? I mean, you know, there's a lot of Willie Nelson like legend and lore out there. There's a lot of writing about Willie, and he he's he's. He's well chronicled, so I guess what surprised me was by the count that I make in the piece, he's recorded 97, he's released 97 studio albums. That's only the studio albums now. He's There are many other live albums and blah, blah, blah. So, um, but I like kind of dove into that discography more than I had before. I thought I was a, you know, Willie Nelson mega fan, but I hadn't really, you know, <laughs> I hadn't gone... Um, completist on the project, and which I kind of did for this. And and what what really surprised me is how like he's he's really good all the time. You know, he's done, he hasn't made a lot of weak he hasn't made a lot of weak records. <laughs> it was surprising to me to, to find my own feelings about him kind of affirmed. Like he's always struck me as like just just one of the top very top few um, American vocalists ever. You know, up there with with Sinatra, Billy Holiday, that sort of thing both because he is, you know, famously has recorded a lot of those American song standards, but also just because as an interpreter of popular songs, he's just, he's just an incredibly unique and skilled and sneaky and beautiful singer and also tremendous guitarist. And and he he sort of sings and plays guitar in, in the same way, which is kind of with this very eccentric, virtuosic sense of rhythm and time. But that was I sort of thought, Oh yeah, this is my sort of pet theory about Willie or I've I've heard this, but I'm not sure how many people have. Well, of course everybody has and Was revealed to me doing these interviews and kind of reading up on him more is just how, you know, he is really a musician's musicians and all like nearly all the all time greats regard Willie as an all time great. Like right up, you know, for instance, I this didn't even make it into the piece, but Willie Nelson's manager was also Miles Davis's manager for a while. The two of them were friends, and that is Davis and Nelson were friends and um, mutual admirers. And you know, Miles Davis recorded a song called Willie Nelson. In the late Hmm. 70s, you know, just paying because because he heard in Willie Nelson, someone whose you know, tonal imprint was really similar to his and sense of like time and space in music and the way he kind of lays back behind the beat or rushes out in front of it. Mm. and, And if you think about Willie Nelson's like, think about Willie Nelson's, you know, kind of soothing vocal tone and the tone that Miles gets on his horn. You know, there's 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 a kinship there. So that just kind of discovering how many, you know, mega (laughs) great musicians understand that Willie is a titan was was revelatory for me, I guess.
1: Dana, you're a resident Texan, which means you get first question here. What was it like growing up in the state where he is most revered and what struck you as most interesting about Jody's profile?
3: Well, this was one reason I wanted to have Jody on the show the second I read this profile. Is that Willie Nelson is just so woven into my life that I don't remember ever not hearing him. And two of the albums that you mentioned, I guess his big 70s hit albums, "Redheaded Stranger and Stardust, the standard collection, were just standard platters, you know, spinning at my house because my parents love those records. But also, Julia, as you say, I grew up in Texas and San Antonio, but my early childhood was spent in Helotus, which used to be a small town outside of San Antonio, who has now been absorbed into a suburb. But it used to be, you know, many cow fields outside of town. And there's this venue there called the Floor Country Store that's sort of a bar, music venue, barbecue joint where Willie Nelson used to play regularly like he had a standing gig there. I don't know how often he came, but he would debut new material there. You know, it was the kind of thing where it was a, a small audience where he could just come and play whatever he liked. And I don't think I ever went there to see him, but as I recounted to Jody when we invited him on the show, my house was just up the hill from the Floor Country Store and the sound would just like reverberate. You know, you could just sit on the porch and listen to Willie Nelson on a regular basis. So he was literally in the air when I was growing up and I love him but as you say Jody he has such a long history of writing songs that even as you know what I consider a pretty big Willie Nelson fan I'm always discovering new stuff and I wanted at this point in the conversation to listen to a little Willie because my favorite fact or my favorite way of spinning facts in your piece is when you say that he's been writing songs since the Eisenhower administration, <laughs> which almost makes him seem like a time traveler from Mars or something. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to hear something from, well, I guess this would be the Kennedy administration. So not quite that old. But um, his first hit, which I think believe was not sung by him when it was a number one country hit, which is Hello Walls. I love this song in part because it illustrates what you capture in the piece so well, which is his really playful but also mordant kind of sense of humor. (laughs) Hello, Walt. Hello.
1: How'd things go for you today? Don't you miss her?
0: Since she up and walked away And I'll bet you dread
3: to spend Another lonely night with me Lonely walls
1: I'll keep you company Hello window
3: <laughs> Hello window he goes on he goes on to address all of the objects in his room and apologize for being such a sad broken-hearted wreck
0: Yeah <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah. and he's just the greatest. I mean, I have to say, Jody, which is the bigger anomaly in 2022? An American who seems to unite absolutely every other American in love and comedy, C-O-M-I-T-Y, or getting a 9,000-word piece into the Times Magazine. I mean, that's just an incredible feat. It's a, it's a wonderful piece, and it justifies its length with uh, every paragraph, every sentence, really. It, it's amazing. I mean, you just... He just contains this vastness, this, these multitudes, and the piece had to reflect that and really did. So congrats. Um, I guess the question I have is, can any theory encompass how in a country whose pastime is scapegoating fellow country people, and that seems to be on the verge of a going from a cold to a hot civil war, that there are these exceptions really right i think like almost every american would be happy to take you know you mentioned miles sinatra willie nelson dolly parton being another one and vote them to like you know get get on a spaceship to be the first people to greet the aliens you know i mean they're just sort of figures of universal respect and love and to have one in texas right i mean he's Would you even describe? I mean, I don't want to get into his politics. That's not the important thing. But what is it about? Is there any kind of unified theory of of popularity that says there are some people who just transcend all of the sort of mutual hatreds and, and reductive categorizations that Americans use to think about everything else now?
2: yeah i mean he 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 is an anomalous figure in that regard for sure I mean, I don't know man it's like i mean I guess the part of it is like i mean you know maybe the best interview I've ever had for a piece or the one I had the most fun with. And the one that was the was the most striking in terms of the brilliance of my interlocutor was—is that how you say that word? Anyway, was um, the one I did with Wynton Marcellus for this piece. He, I was—I okay. I, he was in London, um, and like I caught him on the phone at some God knows what time of night, and he just said, "I will talk to you as long as you want about Willie Nelson. I love this man so much," and he kind of poured out a little bit like a trumpet solo, right? Just <laughs> this. Series of brilliant riffs about Willie as a musician and a man. And I actually put that up on my website, which you can Google jody rosen.com or something like that, I think, because it was so great. It's like an outtake from the piece that I had to put up because it was so incredible to hear Marcellus's thoughts about Nelson. But, like, you know, he says, look, this guy, to know him is to love him. He's, he's, he's a, a beautiful person. He also said he's an empath and a mystic. <laughs> you know, so true. and what you really yep. hear in his in his music, you know what I mean? It's like so his music is both like so earthy and grounded in like the loamy soil of American musical, you know, roots, traditions. Right. And also like it's in outer space because he touches like <laughs> the most, mm. you know, profound. Questions that uh, we as humans contemplate about, you know, life and love and and yeah. sex and God and what it all means, right? And he often and 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 he does it in this in the most unassuming way, where you know, I say in the piece that piece that when he speaks, I'm mean, sorry, when he sings, it sounds like speech, right? He he has this right. incredible right. naturalism, this kind of in in the way he he sings, so it sounds like he's just kind of you know whispering in your ear or or thinking out loud and that to pull that off you have to have extremely refined technique that's not that's actually phony naturalism that's just like godlike virtuosity yeah. right but but Uh, And, and, you know, and I I guess I'd say the one other thing, which is just like, you know, obviously music is something that is a force that unites us, you know, that like people, people like think of a song like YMCA that's both, you know, a gay cruising anthem and is Donald Trump's, you know, theme song or whatever the fuck he uses, you know what I mean? It's like music Mm -hmm. has a way of like crossing these divides and transcending all the chasms that divide us also nelson himself really just kind of embodies so many different traditions so he himself is a kind of um musical unconscious that like he's a white guy who sings country music but he's so steeped in qualities that we associate with black music that he everybody can feel him if we have a sec to listen to another song Mm, yeah oh absolutely i think maybe we should go with um a performance a live performance which is where you really hear willie doing his thing Um, so maybe we can we can pull this up on YouTube it's a performance from um, 1979 from the TV show Austin City limits of, of another early Willie Nelson song funny how time slips away great 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 song and there you hear how Nelson is like using jazz chords and intervals in his songwriting, but also just the incredible Intimacy and force of his, his singing and guitar playing. It's just a solo acoustic performance. It speaks to just like how his music is down here and up up there and everywhere in between in a way that, you know, more or less every human, or, or at least humane human, can relate to.
1: Well hello there. <laughs> oh, hello. It's
3: been a long, long time.)
1: How am I doing? Oh, I guess that I'm doing fine. Well, it's been so long now, but it seems now that it was only yesterday. Gee, ain't it funny? How time.
0: Oh, wow. Wow. I mean, just absolutely godly. And can I make it just a banal observation? I mean, it's a very distinctive thing, I think, for someone who's thought of as a country singer to play with a nylon stringed flamenco style guitar. And it's a very distinctive part of a lot of his sound to do that. And then... To go way beyond the usual one-four-five cording of a lot of country music, which is used to wonderful effect. Don't get me wrong. Into these kind of ninths and sevenths and jazz, like amer like kind of standard American songbook, you know, sort of jazz standard cording is so fucking unique. It's. I mean, I think it's unique, Jody. I. I don't know. I can't think of people who do
2: it. Yeah. With Spanish influenced picking and flourishes, and it's not kitschy. I can only agree 100%. And of course, like, you know, inseparable, like, uh, you know, a big part of, of Willie lore is uh, the lore of his guitar, Trigger, which is the nylon string guitar that he bought. I think it's in 1969 he got that, which kind of, he'd, he'd, he'd long sought that Django Reinhardt kind of sound. Django Reinhardt, the great Belgian jazz guitarist. Django Reinhardt's one of his godheads. Um, and that, I think, was a big epiphany for Nelson in kind of you know, homing in on his own sound. But you're absolutely right. A big, big part of his mystique and the force of his music. All right.
1: Well, Jody, thank you so much for coming on. Somehow, we've managed to conduct an entire interview about Willie Nelson without mentioning pot until now. So kudos to all of us. Uh, but there's plenty on that <laughs> in Jody's piece. If you want to go, check it out. It's called Willie Nelson's Long Encore in the New York Times. Uh, Jody, thanks so much for for doing this piece and for joining us.
2: Thank you, guys.
1: And thank you Slate Plus listeners for supporting Slate, for supporting this show and for sticking around to hear this extra. We'll see you next week.